This evening's talk is about equanimity. And we'll begin with a few moments as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with the Bodhisatta, this just about to be Buddha on that now famous night. So closing your eyes and settling in for a moment. And as though we're sitting under the Bodhi tree with the just about to be Buddha. As he was protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and penetrating sense of exploration, investigation, accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and the flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering, undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive, open-hearted presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. The mountain of equanimity. Here in Taos, we have what is considered to be a sacred mountain. It's one amongst many mountains that surround the Taos Valley. And this sacred mountain is actually within the Taos Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians that sits on the north end of the town of Taos. And this particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people and is also a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. I have the good fortune to be able to look out at it and take it in in every season, any time of the day or night, any day of the year, as it's very clearly visible from where I live. This mountain 
any mountain just simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain and hail fall on it, snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it. All sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular patterns on and with the mountain. The mountain remains unshakable, unwavering, the mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of impartiality, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a live energy, a lively energy, and only exists in relationship to all of the myriad lively energies constantly changing lively energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached or averse to anything. We might say that it lets life live through it, through itself, closing off to nothing and holding on to nothing. And all of this happens because of the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. And so begins our exploration of upekka, equanimity. Equanimity is a powerful force in our practice, a powerful force in the whole of our life. In the Buddhist teachings, it's included as one of the ten perfections, ten paramis. It's one of the four Brahma-viharas, the divine abidings, metta, unconditional loving-kindness or friendship, karuna, unconditional compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and upekka, equanimity. It's also one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness, investigation of states, effort, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And it's one of the two jhana factors that are present in the fourth jhana, ikagata, one-pointedness, and equanimity. Upeka was the final factor to come into maturity before he attained full awakening, full enlightenment, as the about-to-be Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree that now famous night with an evenness and balance in his relaxed and powerful presence as though he were an immovable mountain. As he sat there with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance, seeing things clearly and relinquishing, letting go, 
relinquishing every attachment to all formations of body and mind. And then breaking through to the great awakening, breaking through to the complete ending of suffering. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the power, and the equilibrium of the mind, the heart, to experience all kinds of change. The fearlessness, the power, and the balance of heart and mind to experience every sort of manifestation and change in the realms of internal and external formations and in the realm of feeling, the pleasant and unpleasant feeling that are associated, that's associated with the arising change and passing of all internal and external phenomena. In times of stress, turbulence and uncertainty, The Buddhist teachings offer us the radical notion that when we cultivate an equanimous mind, heart, even the most extreme external circumstances don't hold sway. And some words from the 8th century Buddhist monk Shantideva. It is not possible to control all external events. But if I simply control my mind, what need is there to control other things? The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity, meaning equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. This six-limbed equanimity was described as the equanimity of one whose afflictive states or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, have been destroyed. Destroyed temporarily, as happens in the deep concentration of jhana or to some degree along the way of the development of deepening concentration, or destroyed completely, finally, as occurs in the final completion of vipassana practice, and who abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to desirable and undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And some words from the Buddha. Here, uh, a bhikkhu or a yogi or a meditator whose cankers are destroyed is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. He or she dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness, great strength, and 
ease of the mind, the heart, to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of the word upeka is on-looking. Equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by remaining in a neutral mode, by staying in the center, staying in the middle, watching things as they arise. On looking, it sees them fairly without favoritism or bias, without partiality. So one attribute of equanimity itself is uh, described as the realm of feeling as neither painful nor pleasant feeling, sometimes called neutral feeling. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or the equilibrium between the opposing forces in the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets the weightiness of greed and aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember as a child that I loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on the seesaw or what we called the teeter-totter with another child. Both of us at that point, once in a while, both of us suspended in our teeter-totter seat, perfectly balanced in mid-air. There was always a kind of uh, uh, happy and almost breathtaking feeling inside me in moments when this would occur. The poet T.S. Eliot said it beautifully. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being an experience of great spaciousness and strength of mind and heart. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting a spoonful of salt in a cup of water. Because of the small container, the water will be extremely salty, very harsh, undrinkable. On the other hand, if we put a a spoonful of salt in a large body of water, the size of the Rio Grande River, the largest river here in New Mexico, it won't have the same effect. 
because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great wateriness or spaciousness that the salt is put into. And life can be quite salty at times, as we all know. It's just how it is sometimes. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of mind and heart with which we can meet and look on at all of life's everyday experiences as well as all of the subtleties of internal and external phenomena that we come to see and know through our practice and that we experience in our life as a whole. To look on with balance, with equipoise, with what's sometimes called the heart of greatness, and what is called in the suttas in relationship to equanimity as a factor of enlightenment, to look on with specific neutrality. So what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, including at times the other three immeasurables, the other three divine abidings, metta, karuna, and mudita, the other six enlightenment factors, which I've already mentioned, as well as the arising of various other wholesome states, such as patience and faith, that they're all met, they're all experienced and seen, looked on at evenly through the mind, the heart of equanimity. The function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. And so, as I've already mentioned in a certain way, equanimity manifests as neutrality. There's a wonderful uh, little book of teachings from Zen Master Dogen with a commentary by Uchiyama Roshi called How to Cook Your Life, where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook, the tenzo, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. And we, of course, can bring this teaching immediately close, right here and now, in relationship to our cook and the food here in the retreat, our amazing Amy, our Tenzo. And also we can bring the teaching into our life when we go back home. And these are Dogen's words. Handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. 
A dish is not necessarily superior because you've prepared it with choice ingredients. Nor is a soup inferior because you've made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly, with a pure mind and without trying to evaluate their quality, in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. In practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same and not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk, the mouth of a yogi, is like an oven. Now this comes from the time of Dogen, so bear with me. (laughs) Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung for cooking, That's not what we're doing in our own. (laughs) Anyways. Uh, uh, Just as an oven burns sandalwood for incense and cow dung for cooking without distinction, our mouths should be the same. There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? So a very simple example in relationship to our practice. We sit and we find that the mind is tranquil. There's serenity. And this is known. And we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, concentration, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is. Probably the breath as a primary object. The mind isn't listless, nor is it agitated. But it's rather it's interested and appropriately energized. At those times, there isn't any interest in or necessity for exerting or restraining or encouraging the mind in any way. In our practice, just simply and clearly recognizing and knowing without attachment that this is what is occurring, that these factors of mind are in place for a brief or maybe for a longer period of time is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of the state or the factor of equanimity, thus contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, all phenomena, with equipoise and composure. During the time and the culture of the Buddha, his metaphor for the mind 
when it's in this mode was this. One is like the charioteer who looks with equanimity on horses progressing evenly. More likely in our case, the metaphor might be one is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity at a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. We're able to see and know to take in what's in front of us and what's passing, what's passing by with ease. This quality, this factor of mind allows the process of practice, the development of concentration in this case, to unfold without getting caught, without getting mired by the habits of mind that can stop things up, such as the various habits of clinging and attachment and identification that create a block a tangle in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtleties of the habits of attachment, identification, aversion, or the comparing mind can be seen, known, and let go of, allowing concentration and understanding to blossom, to deepen, and to eventually mature. As we practice, we begin to taste equanimity, along with the arising of other wholesome mental states, such as patience and confidence and metta, along with the developing of vichara, the aiming and connecting, and the sustaining of attention, and piti and sukha and ikagata, the one-pointedness. And I'm sure, as each of you know, until equanimity is really, truly matured, we lose and we regain our balance over and over again. Quite a number of years ago, for the whole of the last two weeks of uh, many months of retreat that I was sitting, I practiced equanimity every single day, all day, all evening, in the way that it's practiced as a divine abiding, or Brahma-vihara, one of the sublime abidings, silently repeating uh, one equanimity phrase over and over and over again first directing it to myself, and then on through all of the same categories that we use to direct a metta practice. And the phrase that I used was, I am the heir of my kama, meaning the heir of all my deeds, all my actions of mind, speech, and body. My happiness and suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. By the end of those two weeks, there was quite a deep and a quiet sense of balance and 
evenness and neutrality in the mind and heart. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, well, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. And then the next thought that came was, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. If this was a Zen session, a Zen retreat, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then the thought just disappeared. Well, later that day, I was startled in a true Vipassana fashion, an equanimity test Vipassana style. I got a note signed by one of my equanimity teachers, but actually the note was from all five of the teachers who were uh, teaching this many months of three-month retreat. It said, we would like you to give the dana, the generosity talk to the yogis tomorrow. (laughs) Now at that point I was not a teacher, I was not teaching the Dhamma. It was a shock. (laughs) And for a moment, after reading that note, all that accumulated equanimity flew right out the window. And my heart felt like it stopped. And the old habit of fear flew in. And the thought came, I can't. I can't do this now. My old habit. I've been silent for so many weeks and deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of all my fellow yogis and speak. Impossible. And then the heart and the mind relaxed. Saw what had just occurred. And the thought came in, ah, yeah, this is my equanimity test, of course. And I can do it. And I want to do it. And at that moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came into the mind and the heart. Gratitude for the teachers, for the retreat center staff, for the teachings, for the practice. And just as suddenly as it had disappeared, equanimity was back. And what I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing. Until upekka has matured, we lose and regain our balance and equipoise, the balance and the equipoise of equanimity over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, boredom, dislike, resentment, and the self-judgment that can manifest as guilt, disapproval, not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking, pride, attachment and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, me, my experiences. 
Equanimity also manifests as quieting the attachment and the fear that comes up in relationship to others. Along the way of our practice, when equanimity has arisen and is developing, in those moments, fear and resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval and disapproval subside. Within the clear space of a momentary or longer true neutrality, there's nothing for greed and aversion to stick to when they start to arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what's called the equanimity of unknowing, what the Buddha called worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. That's, those are the Buddha's words. So what does this mean, worldly-minded indifference? It occurs when we don't clearly see or clearly see through the object of our attention with the focused attention of a concentrated mindfulness rooted in kind-heartedness. And instead are blindly seduced and swept away in the happenings of life, seemingly equanimous with it all. This is not upekka. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in or produced by ignorance. And some words from the Buddha. On seeing a visible object with the eye or in relationship to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman, in the untaught, ordinary woman or man who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning karma or kama, who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually worldly-minded indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha was wonderfully very direct, straightforward, and succinct in his teaching. So, a short uh, personal story. When I first began living in Taos, I noticed uh, that there were many, many uh, beautiful handcrafted things in the store windows. And at times, I would get quite infatuated with what I was seeing and sometimes caught up in the delusion of needing what I was seeing that very painful contraction of the must-have mind. So I decided to do a practice, give myself a practice over time. And so 
I did this practice for quite a while, and I'd walk along in town, looking in the shop windows, and watching the process of my mind and my heart, watching it (laughs) wanting. And then the feeling of needing would come up. And it took a while, but eventually I began to walk along and look in the windows and appreciate the beauty of what I was seeing without wanting it and without this feeling of need. Appreciating the amazing creative capacities of the human beings who made all of the objects that I was seeing. And it was a great relief, actually. His Holiness the Dalai Lama tells a story about being taken to a a particular area in London by a a friend. Uh, And as they walked along, this friend took them to this particular place on purpose. And as they walked along, uh, passing various shops with that uh, sell, sold all kinds of tiny little mechanical parts, which his friend knew was of a particular interest and fascination of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama said that he found himself having some very strong inner feelings of wanting all of them, all these little tiny mechanical parts, he said, and then realizing that he didn't even know what they were for. He just wanted them. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that um, all of us uh, have experienced the pretense of equanimity within ourselves in the midst of greed, in the midst of dislike, boredom, resentment, anger, fear, disappointment, the kind of glossing over, the ignorance, ignoring these states and pretending to ourselves the pretense of equanimity, the, well, it doesn't really matter attitude or it's all just fine or I'm really okay. Accompanied probably by a slight or maybe not so slight moving away a contraction, or an inner sense maybe of grasping that we might not be aware of. And this, of course, is not equanimity. It's actually indifference, which is the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference masquerading as upaka. And I think we all also know from our own experience, that when we're inflamed with greed, dislike, fear, grief, or resentment, it's extremely difficult or just isn't possible to look on at those moments with a true equanimity. It's part of our human experience and process. Upeka is based on an attentive, clear presence of mind 
not on dullness and indifference. And it's not a kind of casual passing mood, nor is it produced by exertion. It's the result, it's one of the fruits of our practice. The fruit of training the mind, the heart, through the development and the blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, concentration, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, loving-kindness, compassion, and wisdom. A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life, these flip-flops that we encounter in our mind in relationship to what are called the eight worldly winds, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction and disrepute or disrespect or disregard that come our way throughout our life. True equanimity is able to meet all of these sometimes pretty harsh tests and is quickly able to regenerate its strength from our inner resources the resources that have been developed through our diligent practice. And some words from the Buddha. Develop the mind of equilibrium. You will always be getting praise and blame. But don't let either affect the poise of the mind. Follow the calmness, the absence of pride. There's an amazing practice that I've been told was and maybe is occasionally still practiced by the Hopi Indians. And I preface telling you the practice by not recommending it. (laughs) But we can take it as uh, a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and manifestation of the power of fearlessness, evenness of mind and heart, and the protection that is one of the great, great strengths of equanimity. And this is from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. There were all kinds of snakes rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60 all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved toward an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breech cloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their heads to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. 
It showed they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one whose body they chose to rest on. That is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart, getting seduced by and caught up in states of fear, greed, and aversion. And also will possess the power of renewing itself only if it's deeply rooted in a growing insight into the true nature of things. There are two particular understandings that I'd like to spend a little time exploring with you this evening in that they, as they develop along the way of our practice and eventually ripen into understanding, ripen into insight, are really the root of equanimity. And the first of these is our growing clarity in understanding how the vicissitudes, the ups and downs, the eight worldly winds of life, how they originate, how they come to be. And this is the understanding of kama, or the Pali word kama, or karma in Sanskrit. The understanding that the various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the experiences of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions. Our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now, in this lifetime, and on back and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We're born. We spring out of the womb of kama, so to say. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we're undeniably the heirs of our kama. So, for instance, just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet it remains with us and in some way inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance. We could say that everything happens or everything that happens and the ease or dis-ease in our mind in relationship to all that happens is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings in life internally and externally. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our own mind. Our motivations and our responses and our reactions to phenomena. Not due to our hopes and our wishes for ourselves, And not due to some 
other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly strange or foreign world. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so is one of the roots of equanimity. When we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, we only meet our own mind in relationship to everything that happens around us and within us, what is there to fear? This is then an opening, an opportunity for the heart, the mind, to begin to relax. We begin to know that we can change our mind, that in fact we're not trapped on the karmic wheel, running around and around and around like a little mouse. But of course, as we've all experienced, fear, uncertainty, and insecurity arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds. Refuge from this particular perspective is in wholesome thought, wholesome motivations, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. Our practice itself, this incredible training of the mind and heart that we're engaged in, is a very good deed, the best really, and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been important for me in understanding karma or kama is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to good do good deeds. It's never too late. And so we practice this. It becomes established in us. It becomes a refuge. And at some point we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than the increase of the good? as this becomes more and more a certainty in our heart and mind, 
the mind becomes more tranquil and more serene. As we take or engage in this refuge, we gain the great strength of the evenness, balance, and patience of the heart of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. Along the way of our practice with the development and the blossoming of relative equanimity, we find that we have the strength to endure when we need to endure. And we see clearly when that's called for. We have the possibility of not continuing to blindly fall into the same holes over and over again, but begin to walk down a different street. The understanding of kama can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering. As we more and more see our own craving and delusion and our habitual tendencies to create and engage in situations that strain and that sap our strength and sap our healthy resistance, a wholesome disgust, as the Buddha called it, arises. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. The fruit of the deliverance of a deep and clear experience and understanding of equanimity is the escape from greed, the Pali word tanha, the, ex- the escape from, often the way tan has uh, translated is insatiable thirst. So the first insight that the basis of equanimity, that is the basis of equanimity, is a growing understanding of kama. The second insight that equanimity is based on is uh, the teaching and the understanding of anatta, not self. And so from this perspective, there's no one, no self, performing any deeds. Nor do the results affect any self. The fact is, the truth is, that it's the delusion, the wrong view of a separate, solid, a separate, solid me that creates suffering and that disturbs equanimity. If we claim ownership, meaning this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, the vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering. So for instance, if this or that aspect of our personality, some particular quality of ours is criticized or blamed, we usually think, I'm blamed. 
and equanimity is shaken. When we receive approval or praise for something that we've done, often we think, I've been praised. I'm a success. Again, equanimity is disturbed. If this or that work that we've done doesn't succeed or isn't praised in the way that we want it to be, often the thought is, my work has failed. I have failed. And equanimity is shaken. If wealth or a loved one is lost, often the thought is, what's mine has gone. And equanimity is shaken. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken in the delusion with the identification of me, mine, I am. As understanding deepens and the heart opens, there's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based on self-centeredness. Unshakable equanimity is established by giving up, relinquishing all of all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mine, with, of course, that thought itself maybe being quite a daunting thought. And so we begin with the small things, from which it's pretty easy or relatively easy to detach oneself. And gradually working up to the possessions and goals and identifications that we so tenaciously cling to. The first time that I taught at the Forest Refuge at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts was for two months. And I was the very first visiting teacher there. And I was there long enough to really settle in. And yet again and again, there was the awareness that the house that I was staying in wasn't mine. And it came about in small and very simple and sometimes surprising ways. When I first got there, there wasn't a telephone in the house. So I lobbied for a phone, which in moments felt like it was for me. And there was a, quite a degree of tension, of stress in this, my phone. But in truth, the phone was for many, many others who would be using uh, this house over many, many years. At one point I was told uh, that it was okayed. Uh, A phone would be put into the house. But when that would happen was unknown. (laughs) So at that point there was a quick letting go and no more thoughts about it occurred and I relaxed and I truly felt that it just didn't really matter if the phone arrived while I was staying in the house or not as it really wasn't for me it wasn't my phone a little while later while I was there during that two months it was decided to purchase a rug for the living room a genie, the housekeeper, brought the rug catalog over for us to decide which rug to order. It clearly was not a rug for me. It wasn't for my house. We were choosing for anyone. 
We were choosing for everyone, it felt like. And I noticed that this was just such a different experience in the heart. Uh, Not the subtle contraction of something being mine, something being for me. There was an openness and a spaciousness, no contraction, no clinging in the choosing. It was much more fun that way. So the small things that we think are ours at first. And working up to giving up or letting go of or relinquishing the stickier thoughts of self. Beginning to relinquish the identification with some of the qualities that we identified with as who we think we are. Our personality. It's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought of these being who I am that we give up. Beginning with small aspects of our personality, qualities of seeming minor importance, and very slowly through our practice, working up to letting go of identification, practicing detachment, in relationship to those emotions and aversions that we may regard as the center of our being. Ajahn Sumedho, the former abbot of the Amaravati Monastery in England, shares a wonderful way of practicing with this. When a particular habitual tendency of his shows up, and in this case he's talking about the critical mind, he says, oh, there's my personality. Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am, being me? Even including positive emotions as well as the aversions and specific gifts that we might regard, might be identified with as the very center of our being. To whatever degree we abandon, we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of I am. To whatever degree we forsake thoughts of self, equanimity will enter the heart. When we realize, when we really, truly come to know anything as void of a self, in those moments, how could we, how could it cause us any agitation due to lust or hatred or fear or grief. Consequently, the teaching and the practice of anatta is an important guide along the path to perfect equanimity, our guide along the path to liberation. Equanimity, the unshakable balance of mind and heart is rooted in understanding. The first understanding being that of kama and the second being anatta. Equanimity is also seated and grows along the way of our concentration practice. And it blossoms in a profound way as the deeper states of concentration 
the unshakable balance of mind and heart, the mind and heart of equanimity, is cultivated and develops along the way of our anapanasati practice, our concentration practice. The heart, the mind of specific neutrality, equanimity, isn't cold or heartless or dull. It doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness, but rather out of a fullness or a completeness of connection and understanding. At some point in our practice, equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity. In the progress of insight, with when equanimity is strong, fulfilled, and mature, concentration and understanding occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other. Along with and in balance with all of the other factors of enlightenment. With all of these occurring at that point with, with which is often called a single taste. The single taste of awakening. The single taste of liberation. The deliverance from suffering. The Buddha spoke about this as absolute equanimity or holy equanimity. And in the Buddha's words, just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not increase or decrease of the great ocean is seen. Such is the nature of holy equanimity. And so we practice here in retreat and at home in the midst of our daily lives. We practice with sincerity and with diligence. As awakening beings, we practice with aspiration and determination. And because of all this, it's inevitable that concentration mindfulness, and all of the wholesome factors of mind and heart, as well as the liberating insights, will sprout, blossom, and eventually mature within us. It's our kama, or our karma, we could say. I'd like to close the talk this evening with two short pieces from the Udana. The Udana is a book, a little book called the, uh, translated, uh, The Inspired Utterances of the Buddha. And the first one. Whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, it is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger, When her, his mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her? How can suffering come to him?
and the second inspired utterance from the Buddha. For one who clings, motion exists, meaning the movement of the mind. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor any place between the two. This, in truth, is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.